1: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal
1: podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
0: He says,
3: somebody's in the house. And I screamed. (laughs)
2: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
3: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The
2: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
4: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
0: Hello, and welcome to the third season of Criminalia. This season, we're exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious imposters throughout history. I'm Maria Tremarki.
4: And I'm Holly Fry. And in this episode, we're talking about the imaginative story of a woman named Olivia Sayre. And Olivia was an accomplished British landscape painter and a published writer. She lived at the end of the 18th century. Olive, as she was known, was also an imposter pretending to be the legitimate daughter of Prince Henry Frederick, Duke of Cumberland. She insisted on being addressed as Princess Olive of Cumberland, and she claimed to be heir to his estate. You know, Holly, we should have just gone by our princess names for this episode.
0: (laughs) Right? Yeah, but I kind of like to keep it secret. (laughs) I,
4: I would have to come up with a crazy different non-existent fictional land. I'm actually heir to the Alderaan fortune, you you know, when it was destroyed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm really, I was sad for you when I heard about that. (laughs) Let's begin with Olive like this. There's one thing that we know is true. It is true that Olive was born Olivia Wilmot on April 3rd, 1772. And that's a fact. But then to not draw on Mark Twain in this case, where he said, the only difference between reality and fiction is that fiction needs to be credible. So from the record of her birth to the final sentence of this episode, she takes us on kind of a wild ride. We're going to try to weave Olive's story as she tells it with the actual facts of her life as we know them. And really, she,
4: she went all out on this royal claim. Her story about her childhood is that she grew up the daughter of Anna Maria and Robert Wilmot with one brother. Robert made a living as a house painter in Warwick, England. Fun fact about Warwick, the town is best known, not for the Wilmots, but for William the Conqueror, who built the famous medieval Warwick Castle. William's conquest of England changed
0: the course of the country's history, which, while we're not gonna dive into that today, I will say this. French was spoken in England's courts for centuries. And yes, Holly, that is my nightmare.
4: <laughs> well, I'm here for you. I know, so, I appreciate that. <laughs> but the two of us, we'd get along just fine. We would manage to get our needs met. So her father, Robert, had a brother, and that was the Reverend Dr. James Wilmot. And James had received a doctorate of divinity and was a fellow of Trinity College, Oxford. At this time in his career, he was the rector of Barton-on-the-Heath, and he lived about 25 miles away from Robert's home. And so at age 10, Olive was sent to live with her Uncle James.
0: This seems to have been a good situation for Olive. In her writings and letters, we know she was well cared for, and she received an impressive education. Several years later, when she was in her late teens, I guess that would make her, Olive focused her study on painting. In
4: 1791, so just shy of 20 years old, she married John Thomas Sayre, her painting teacher. And John was an established artist. He exhibited more than 100 of his paintings at the Royal Academy and British Institution. He was also the maritime painter to King George III. If you're wondering about that oddly specific
0: job title, it's more or less as it sounds, actually. Sayre specialized in painting marine scenes, and in his role as maritime painter, he was tasked to paint scenes for the Regent, and that generally depicted British ships, events, often military or of historical significance, that kind of thing.
4: <laughs> yes, please paint me this famous battle in the manner in which I say he was an absolutely fantastic painter. Yes. If you've ever seen any of his nighttime maritime mm-hmm. scenes, they're absolutely gorgeous. I
0: hadn't until I was doing research yeah, here. They're beautiful. You
4: should look them up if you haven't. John's father was also an artist. That was Dominic Serre, also known as Dominic Serre the Elder, who was a French-born painter associated with the English school of painting. Serre's paintings often also had a naval or maritime theme, so his son John's work really, truly followed his own. And in 1768, he famously became one of the founding members of the Royal Academy. So John was not only an accomplished artist in his own right, although, as we said, his skills were unquestionable, but he also had family clout in this maritime painting arena. John had his own family. John and Olive had a son whom they named
0: John Dominic South Serre. The infant, however, died just when he was only a few months old. It's actually believed that Olive had several unsuccessful pregnancies before giving birth to her daughter, Lavinia, who was born on March 16th, 1797.
4: Olive also went on to have another successful birth to her youngest daughter, Britannia. The union between John and Olive really was not a happy marriage, though. There were accusations of infidelity. There were also financial issues that strained the marriage. It is believed that Olive gave birth to another child, likely a boy, in 1804, and that John was not confident he was the baby's father. The man who's often referenced in regard to possible paternity there is another artist, George Fields, who had moved in with Olive in John's absence. We don't actually know what the real story is there. But when Olive and John formally separated in 1804, their youngest daughter, Britannia, went to live with her father. After that marriage broke up, Olive
0: immersed herself in her painting and writing. She was a painter of merit and had exhibited her work in the Royal Academy in 1794. By 1806, she had been appointed landscape painter to George, Prince of Wales, who would one day become king.
4: She was also writing a lot at this time, too. In 1805, she published the novel St. Julian. I tried to figure out what that was about, but there's not much record on it. There's not, no. (laughs) And then in 1806, she went on to publish a chapbook, Flights of Fancy, which was poems, and then subsequently, Olivia's Letters to Her Daughters. And she also published St. Athenius's Creed Explained for the Advantage of Youth in 1814.
0: She wrote a memoir of James Wilmot and was determined to prove that he was the real author of what were called the Letters of Junius their two-volume collection of letters, highly critical of King George III and his rule. They were written between 1769 and 1772. Junius, though, is a pseudonym, and it was always thought that anyone from Thomas Paine to Benjamin Franklin to maybe even a group of writers who got together to write it, she never did convince anyone, though, that the author was Wilmot. Mainly because it wasn't. Today, Sir Philip Francis is now generally, yet still not universally, believed to be the author.
4: Olive also published anonymously. We're jumping ahead a little bit here, but in 1832, Lady Anne Hamilton, courtier and memoirist, wrote a book called The Authentic Records of the Court of England for the Last 70 Years. And that detailed a lot of accusations and scandals. It was so scandalous that its publisher, a man named Jay Phillips, was prosecuted and convicted because of its contents. He got away from that problem by fleeing into exile. Why do we care so much about Anne Hamilton's book, you may wonder? While she did not put her name on the work, Olive has since been identified as the author of the second volume of that work, which included more scandals from financial misconduct to murder. The newly expanded book was published as The Secret History of the Court of England. Lady Anne Hamilton was still attached as the author, but with the additional volume, she refused any connection with either work. Whether it was Anne or Olive, though, that book was ultimately suppressed in England. For the obvious reason that everyone in power did not want their business spread around. And everyone else wanted to read it. (laughs) So...
0: When she wasn't writing or painting, Olive was also skilled in some forms of occultism, and she could cast horoscopes, which means she could prepare and write personalized horoscopes for people. Some of you may be inclined to cock an eyebrow at that particular skill, however it was really very common during the 18th century and people
4: embraced the magical and the occult, so this is legit. Yeah, she was legitimately considered to be very skilled. So here is her big moment, though, that defines her life. In 1817, Olive made her first claim as the legitimate daughter of Prince Henry Frederick, Duke of Cumberland and Strathern. I know that was exciting,
0: (laughs) but we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor right now. And when we return, we'll let Olive explain her royal ancestry.
4: Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store, something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older at <laughs> that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now you can get an exclusive ten percent off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C A U S E M E T I C S dot com slash criminalia for ten percent off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable, and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions, and I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past, and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash Criminalia. That's Simply Safe S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E.com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god.
5: More info now. Welcome back to Criminalia. Okay,
4: so we're at the point where Olive explains to people why her Uncle James is not who we think he is. So, Olive has woven an elaborate tale
0: in her head about her royal ancestry in order to make her claim to a royal lineage seem real. According to her story, her Uncle James Wilmot had married. Secretly married, that is, Apollonia Poniatowski, who was the sister in law of King Stanislaw II of Poland. James and Apollonia had one daughter, Olivia, and as part of the story, she explained Olivia would later give birth to a daughter, Olive, through her romantic union with the Duke.
4: And that explained Olive proved that Robert Wilmot was not her father, and her uncle James was not her uncle. He was actually her grandfather, James. She claimed she had royal blood, and the marriage and the birth were kept secret. Secret, she believed, because having a marriage and a family would have jeopardized the Duke's career.
0: So I'm going to make a little note right here. Um, In the telling of Olive's story, we now have two Olivias to keep track of. For clarity, we're going to refer to our imposter as her nickname, Olive, and her
4: alleged mother we will call her Olivia. So, as a teenager, the story goes, Olivia caught the eye of two suitors, the Duke of Cumberland and the Earl of Warwick. The claim, undoubtedly because it prevented anyone from claiming Olive was an out of wedlock baby and therefore not an heir, was that Olivia married the Duke in a secret ceremony on March 4th, 1767, and that James officiated. And this is one way that Olivia uses her story to turn herself into a legitimate heir. Olive also explained that her parents were not together because,
0: known or unknown to his new wife, the Duke had quite a colorful reputation. In one instance, the Duke was sued by Richard Grosvenor, first Earl Grosvenor, after being caught in an affair with his wife. It wasn't the only time. The Duke left Olivia, who was then pregnant with Olive, to marry Anne Horton, and... It was alleged to be a bigamous marriage, said Olive, as he and her mother were never divorced.
4: Outside of Olive's royal colored world, however, the Duke's life doesn't actually ever intersect with her alleged mother, Olivia, or with herself. Henry Frederick became Duke of Cumberland in 1766, and then he spent nearly a decade in the Royal Navy, rising to rank of admiral. He did have that scandalous relationship with Lady Grosvenor, and he did marry Anne Horton. And he took an actress named Anne Elliott as his mistress. Olive, we see as we unfold her story, kind of combines just enough details of real life with her fanciful version to try to legitimize her spin on events. And she really does. mean, it's difficult to keep
0: track when you're just starting out on her story. What is true? What is not true? What is half true? She's pretty good at this. She became more and more passionate about her story, as if she actually believed that it was a real story, not her own deceit. And maybe she did believe it by this point. Her false life story expanded as time went on, though. She was the child of the Duke of Cumberland and his wife, Olivia. That part of the scam, that part's solid. (laughs) But then, she added a new detail, so to cover up the birth, she explained James and Apollonia placed their newborn under the care of James's sister, Mrs. Payne, just 10 days after she was born. The baby was switched for a stillborn daughter of James's brother Robert. By adding a deceased
4: infant to the story, Olive had managed to close some kind of big plot holes. So in a petition to King George III in 1817, Olive officially put forward a claim as the natural and legitimate heir of Henry Frederick, Duke of Cumberland, the king's younger brother. Up to this point, it had just been a lot of talk, but this is her first legal attempt at legitimizing herself, although nothing would come of it yet. In 1820, so just a couple years later, after the
0: death of George III, Olive, once again, asserted she was the Duke's daughter. She explained that her mother, Olivia, had died, quote, of a broken heart caused by the Duke's scandalous marriage to Anne Horton. As an interesting royal aside here, it was Henry and Anne's marriage that really kind of lit the flame on the Royal Marriages Act of 1772. When enacted, it prohibited any descendant of King George to marry without the monarch's approval, because how dare Henry marry a commoner? Actually, he wasn't the only one.
4: (laughs) It took the deaths of George III and the Duke of Kent for Olive to really run with her story. Basically, the people who didn't believe her were gone. (laughs) So now she could just pedal to the metal on this whole thing. (laughs) It's said it was actually at a memorial for the king where she officially assumed the title of Princess Olive of Cumberland. And as any new princess would do, she also placed royal coat of arms on her carriage. Uh, She had herself rechristened in the church as Olive, the daughter of the Duke of Cumberland and Olivia, the Duke's wife. She began sending announcements in her royal ancestry and to work to establish herself among the local media. In
0: 1821, Olive, who wanted and tried to live like a royal, like actually like a royal, was arrested for debt.
4: So for those wondering what became of Olive's estranged husband, John... John's career and reputation were really severely damaged when Olive began this claim that she was a royal. Remember, his bread and butter was painting for royalty. After his art career ended, he invested in theater, and he was one of the founders of the Royal Coburg Theater in 1818, and that theater would become famously known as the Old Vic. Ultimately, though, Olive's need to have the extravagances that you might expect of royalty left both of them penniless. John died in debtor's prison in 1825. Telling her
0: story to anyone and everyone, as you can imagine, Olive was able to convince a member of parliament that her story was true. And as a consequence, her claim was debated in the House of Commons. She provided all the required
4: documentation. But in the end, the claim was dismissed. It was determined that all of those documents she provided were forgeries. On top of that, the Poniatowski family reported that none of King Stanislaw's sisters had ever been to England. So a big chunk of her story's foundation was obliterated. In
0: 1823, things aren't really looking so great for Olive's claims. While some thought there was a significant resemblance between Olive and Henry Frederick, the Duke's paternity was never actually proven. She was accused of forging evidence, but she was not charged.
4: We're going to take a break for a word from a sponsor, but when we're back, we're going to introduce you to Olive's daughter, Lavinia.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
2: This is Uncanny USA.
3: 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Write Rug Flooring.
5: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
3: Hopefully, having
1: conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
5: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called impromptu
1: follow impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue global. When you come back with a Purdue global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
0: Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about Olive's daughter, Lavinia, and her claim of royal blood. In
4: 1822, Olive and John's daughter, Lavinia, Married, like everyone else in the family, an (laughs) artist, portrait painter Antony Reeves. They divorced in 1847, and then Lavinia disappears for about a decade. Right. We don't
0: really know what she was doing. But when she resurfaced after her divorce, it was to file a petition to validate her mother's claims. That would make Lavinia Princess Lavinia of Cumberland. She claimed that her mother, Olive Wilmot, was the legitimate niece of King George III, which meant she was entitled to royal status and all the fortune and fame that went with it. She claimed these should have passed to her as her birthright.
4: Lavinia grew up with a mother who lived as a princess and spent much of her own life continuing to uphold her mother's claim that she was a royal and that she too had royal blood. So that makes this feel like... We kind of just wandered into a two for one imposter story. I know. (laughs) It was unexpected. (laughs) She
0: began with a declaration of the validity of the marriage between her mother and father. She was able to secure a meeting with the Duke of Cambridge, who appeared to maybe, but probably didn't believe her story. In June 1866, she petitioned the House of Lords to declare that the Duke of Cumberland and Olivia Wilmot were lawfully married and that their daughter, Olive, Lavinia's mother, was their
4: legitimate child. So just as Olive had done, Lavinia submitted all of the documents that she had previously submitted. There were about 70 in total, including an alleged will from King George III that appeared to include Inheritance meant for Olive. That was a bequest of about 15,000 pounds. The case circled around all of the signatures, though, on all of these documents, and in particular, this will. At the 1866
0: trial, a handwriting expert was brought in to testify to the authenticity of George III's and other signatures on all of those papers. And there were some questions, actually, about some of Lavinia's submitted documentation. The signature submitted as being George III's, for example, did not match the real king's signature. In other documents, William Pitt and Lord Brooks's signatures were also questioned. It's generally believed that any documents involved in this were made by, or at least at the behest of Olive, not Lavinia. She maintained her documents were genuine, and she may have truly believed that the court Did not prosecute her for forgery. She may have been as much of a victim of her mother's false claims as anyone else.
4: Right. Her mom told her this was the truth for years and years and years, and she took her at her word. Of course, we're a princess. The court concluded after all of this that Prince Henry Frederick, Duke of Cumberland, was not lawfully married in 1767, not to Lavinia's grandmother, or in fact, to anybody. They found Lavinia to be the legitimate daughter of Olive and John Sayre. Lavinia kept the struggle going, but just two years later, there were no more appeals. She died in December of 1871, having never been able to prove that she and her mother were royalty. And this is where
0: Olive's fictionalized family tree ends. Her story and her effort to claim legitimacy as a royal is long, but when we look at what we know to be true, it's actually much, much shorter. It's true that James and Robert Wilmot were indeed brothers. It's true they had a sister named Olivia, but she was not married in a secret ceremony to the Duke of Cumberland. She was married to a man named William Payne. If you recall, James had a sister, Mrs. Payne, and the couple had one daughter, Olivia, known as Olive. Olive, as a commoner, died a debtor in King's Bench Prison on November 21st, 1834. So on that sad story note, Holly, do you have something so to-
4: chirpy. I know.
0: do So chirpy. Do we have something a little lighter?
4: We do. And I will tell you this story, because it involves someone claiming to be a princess, sets off all of my stuff. Because I <laughs> um, I just love the concept of princessness and what it's become culturally. And I went through this phase for a while where I was very obsessed with what could be princess food. I know that sounds nutty. Yeah, like uh, some of it is informed by like Disney princesses, but also just the idea of like being very fancy and a little contrived. And so I for a while I would have princess brunches at my house where people had to wear a tiara or a sash. Oh
0: man, I live 3,000 miles away from you and I'd be all dressed up. Right.
4: (laughs) It would really just involve lots of kooky cocktails and fun um, and ridiculous food. But so this is very much in my like space that I love. And so one of the things I was thinking of for a mocktail was what kind of in the most cloying and silly way people would think of as a princess drink. And so I came up. With something that anybody who has hosted a child's birthday party will recognize some of this, but i calling it bogus princess punch. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it starts with a scoop of lemon sorbet. And on top of that lemon sorbet, you're just going to drop that right in your glass. I used a Collins glass, but you can use really whatever. It doesn't matter. I pre-chilled mine though, which made it extra yummy. And then you're going to add, this is where it gets a little different. Three quarters of an ounce of mint syrup on top of that sorbet. And then you're going to top that with ginger ale. And the mint and the lemon, you don't want to go any farther than three quarters of an ounce of mint, or it will drive the bus of all the flavor (laughs) on this thing. Like it will overwhelm everything else. If you find you have over minted with the syrup, you can add more sorbet to try to balance it out. But the thing that happens is that you don't get lemon flavor or mint flavor, you get something weird. That's yummy, but like not that you cannot place. It's like the four documents of (laughs) Olive's Life. Like it's like, this is an interesting document, but it's not legitimate. (laughs) But there's 70 ingredients in this. This is an interesting flavor, but I don't quite know what it is. Um, It's that. But it's very refreshing and yummy. I drank mine through a straw because it was not one that I wanted to like slowly sip. I was just like, yes, give me more. If you want to make this a grown-up adult alcoholic drink, which is not to say that grown-ups wouldn't want the mocktail version. uh, But if you want to make it into an alcoholic beverage, because of that lemon sorbet, it made me think of a Tom Collins. Oh. And so an ounce and a half of gin in there does something really beautiful to the whole thing. And then I was like, oh, this is what we're drinking the rest of the summer. So.
0: <laughs> like, and amazingly, it's gin.
4: <laughs> right? This is where the gin pays off. Lemon sorbet on its own is a little bit too much for my palate sometimes. I'm not really a citrus person and I don't love tart. Right, right. But I'll eat lemons. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the lemon sorbet that I got is a very tart lemon sorbet. And then the mint syrup can also, as I said, be very overwhelming. You want to be really, really careful with it. But because those are two pretty strong flavors, adding in the gin with its own strong punch of flavor, they actually balance each other out quite nicely. And you end up with like this very bubbly punch, Lovely. which I quite <laughs> love. So that is bogus princess punch. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me laugh at myself and at this whole madness. The sadness of living a life where you believe you are something that is never validated. And I can only imagine how stressful that is, not just for Olive, yeah. but for Lavinia in particular. I think a lot about Lavinia and how she
0: was very likely raised just thinking she had royal blood. By the time she got to be an adult, she's like, well, I got to do something about this. And that's just kind of kind of heartbreaking that she had to find out the way she did.
4: Right, right this instead feels a little bit youthful and springy and fun even if it is a bogus princess punch so hopefully if you (laughs) try it you enjoy that give us a yell and share it if you do thank you for hanging out with us here today on criminalia and we're gonna be right back here next week with another imposter Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: From BBC Radio Four, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
3: Right Rug Flooring. with Zumo Play.